0: Americans United for Life works every day to protect human life. Wesley J. Smith, our guest today, is a standout leader in the mission to educate Americans on policies that seek to undermine and demean the value of human life, particularly regarding euthanasia and suicide by physician. Wesley is the author of more than a dozen books, including his latest, Culture of Death, The Age of Do-Harm Medicine. Wesley is also a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism and a consultant to the Patients' Rights Council. Today, I'm honored to speak with Wesley on his life and work on the issue of human dignity and the particular moment we're in as it pertains to the contagion of suicide. I'm Tom Shakley, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law. I am Tom Shakley, and I'm joined today by Wesley J. Smith. Wesley, it's great to be here with you.
1: Thank you, Tom. Good to see you.
0: Welcome to Americans United for Life. This is your first time here.
1: Yes, thank you, and uh, hello to your listeners.
0: So, Wesley, let's get started. Tell us a bit about your story. Uh, Wesley Smith, longtime California resident, now a resident of the swamp. (laughs) How did this come to be?
1: Well, I'm married to a journalist named Deborah J. Saunders, and uh, she uh, used to work for the San Francisco Chronicle as a columnist. And uh, when that uh, ended, she quit. Uh, She got a call and suddenly became a White House correspondent. Uh, So in a period of eight weeks, we went from California to the swamp. It was quite a remarkable time.
0: That's amazing. But now what hasn't changed though is your affiliation with Discovery Institute, particularly the Center on Human Exceptionalism. Can you tell us a bit
1: about what that is, what that work involves? The Center on Human Exceptionalism tries to do two things. Number one, it tries to stand up for the intrinsic dignity and sanctity of human life, the importance of being human. I've come to believe that the most important question of the 21st century is whether or not human life has intrinsic meaning, ultimate value, simply and merely because it's human. If we say yes to that question, then we can have universal human rights, equality, and so forth. If we say no to that question, Then we have to ask a second question. Well, if being human isn't what gives value, then what does? And at that point, you move away from objective value into subjective, who has the power to decide. So, for example, if somebody of the ilk of Peter Singer, the Princeton bioethicist who believes that being human is irrelevant, what matters is having cognitive capacities that he says earn the capacity of being a person, if that's the case, then there are going to be certain human beings that are not going to be equal because they do not exhibit those capacities that those in power decide. So if we do not say yes to the question I posed, universal human rights, which has been the predicate of the West, which has been the purpose of uh, our efforts of the last several hundred years, goes by the wayside, because without human exceptionalism, as I call it, universal human rights are impossible. The second aspect The reason I don't just call it the sanctity of life, why I call it human exceptionalism, the second aspect has to do with human beings as moral agents. We are the only known moral agent in the corporeal universe. Only human beings have the capacity to know right from wrong. In fact, that is in our natures. And those who do not understand right from wrong, it's either because they are not yet able to do that because of immaturity, for example, infants or because they've lost those capacities due to illness or injury. Therefore, human beings are the only known species that have duties. We have duties to ourselves. We have duties to our posterity. When the founders of the United States were creating this country, they often wrote about their posterity. That's us. And just as they were thinking about us and having a better country and a better place to live for us, we have the duty, because we're human, to do that for the people who will come after us. We have duties to treat animals humanely. That's not the same thing as animal rights, which I opposed. Animal rights has a moral, it's an ideology, and it says that humans and animals are morally equal, and that what gives value is the capacity to suffer. Therefore, since a cow can suffer and a human being can suffer, both can feel pain, then cattle ranching is the moral equivalent of human slavery. Well, that's just nuts, because If you have human exceptionalism, you understand that human beings have the duty not to cause the animal's gratuitous pain, but the cows don't have any duties to anyone or anything or each other because they are not moral agents. We also have duties to the environment, to treat it properly, which isn't the same thing as what's happening, and we may talk about this, nature rights. That is giving human-type rights to nature, which is a neo-paganism, which is a neo-earth religion, which says that human beings are just another animal in the forest. Now, what these advocates think is that if we treat the earth As our equal, that we'll be gentler and kinder on the earth, and I say no. If we think we're just another animal in the forest, that's how we'll act. Because animals act on impulse. Animals don't have moral duties. Animals don't have the duty or the even desire to mitigate suffering. Animals are animals. Humans, while biologically, of course, we're animals, in a moral sense, we're not. We're human beings. So human exceptionalism discusses our intrinsic value, and then the uh, concomitant aspect that we have duties. And the more human we act, the better the world will be.
0: I remember a few years ago seeing this totally confusing to me bumper of a car. And on one end of the bumper, there was a sticker that said, keep abortion legal. And on the other end of the spectrum, it said, save the baby dolphins. I think <laughs> to me that illustrates sort of what you're talking about, which is this 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 contradiction in the in the zeitgeist where culturally people are are recognizing certain goods and failing to recognize others and there's there's sort of no common language uniting this conversation
1: anymore. Well but what makes that a consistent bumper sticker is that the purpose of society for some people has shifted. For me it should be it is the protection of all human life, innocent human life, it is promoting righteousness and principles of liberty, freedom, and mutual respect. But for some people, it has become the elimination of suffering. And if you decide that the elimination of suffering is your highest societal duty or goal, that quickly mutates into eliminating the sufferer which is the assisted suicide euthanasia issue. It also is part of the abortion issue because the cause of suffering for the woman who doesn't want to be pregnant is the child she is carrying. And so we eliminate her suffering by eliminating that gestating child that she is carrying. And then you get into, well, the suffering of the planet and so forth, and that's why you'll see things such as the nature rights movement discussing uh, how human beings are, are... killing the planet and this kind of thing, it it leads to very different outcomes depending on what you think the purpose of organized society is. All
0: right, let's back up a minute. How did you get to where you are now, the things you're thinking about, your career path? You started off as an attorney.
1: (laughs) Guilty. (laughs) So explain that. I grew up with two heroes. One was John Adams. And the reason I thought of John Adams as a hero was when he defended the Redcoats after the Boston Massacre at great potential expense to himself because he believed everybody had the right to a defense, even the hated Redcoats. My second hero as a teenager was Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader at that time was just emerging as this one man Wrecking crew of General Motors, because he had exposed uh, the Corvair automobile, among others, as being unsafe, had written a book called Unsafe at Any Speed. General Motors tried to destroy Ralph rather than deal with what he actually wrote. They tried to set him up and destroy him personally. He found out about it, which was a mistake for General Motors, because Ralph sued. He was able to uh, then break through into the inner, into the national consciousness. There were Senate hearings. He just burst onto the scene. This one man, a Lebanese, the son of Lebanese immigrants, who stood for righteousness and integrity and honor and honesty. And he set me on fire, my heart on fire, about the power of one man standing for what is right as he sees it, or she, or for a woman, she sees it. So. Th- John Adams and Ralph Nader kind of inspired me to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a public defender, actually, and stand up for people. I I believed in defending the weak, the vulnerable, and those who many others would not defend. Uh, I became a lawyer for that reason. I tried to become a public defender, actually scored in the top 10 of the Los Angeles County exam and was going to get a job, but they had a hiring freeze. And so I was impeded in that desire and I had worked my way through law school selling Penny televisions and refrigerators <laughs> and I was still doing that and I was a licensed lawyer and it was driving me crazy. So when I got an offer from a civil firm to join that firm, I took it because I couldn't wait anymore. And then a month later, of course, this, the PD gig came through. I had to turn it down because these people had invested yeah. in me and my life would have been totally different if, uh, if, that's one of those those branches in your life where depending on what happens, you're going to go one way or a different way, and uh, because I chose the civil job and didn't get the PD job, my life changed completely, uh, but that's how come I became a lawyer, and then I was a civil trial lawyer for about 10 years and then quit. Why did you quit? I didn't know it at the time. I, I grew to hate it, which broke my heart at the same time because I'd worked so hard and wanted to do it so much, but... After I quit, I came to understand what it was that really bothered me. I was in law to do justice. And because we no longer understand exactly what justice is, we've turned everything into process. And so lawyers are basically bureaucrats. Most of what lawyers do isn't the glamour of being in court and cross-examining that person and getting them to admit like Perry Mason that they're the ones who actually did the the crime. Yeah, yeah. Most of it is paperwork, uh, depositions, waking up to have an argument, uh, frivolous defenses for the big corporate firms. I mean, they will use their power and money to just throw a blizzard of paperwork up on the wall to try to keep you from getting through. Uh, and I just found it incredibly frustrating. It wasn't what I had planned when I idolized John Adams and Ralph Nader. Uh, so I quit. It was very hard to do, but I did it. And if I hadn't, I think I might have had a cardiac event at age 40 because uh, I was really hating it.
0: All right. Well, as a group of mostly attorneys at American Center <laughs> for Life, uh, it's always interesting to hear uh, what an attorney or a former attorney has to say about these things. Um, how does having had that background as an attorney help you when you're coming to analyze these life issues?
1: Essential. And all the books I've written, I, I wrote and researched as if I were a lawyer creating a case for a jury. In other words, I, I try to create the facts that I then present to the jury, which is the reader, and I do it in, a, I think, a systematic and logical fashion that I hope calls for a verdict of the reader to agree with me. Uh, so the law practice that I did and the, and the legal training was in, in, invaluable in my formation as a human being seeking to, to achieve excellence, because I worked my way through law school. I had to be very diligent in my studying. And, and I had never given 100% of myself to anything until I did that, because I was working full-time and going to law school on a four-year program instead of three, and I had to really work and focus. And I found out what I was capable of that I hadn't known before. When I was growing up, I didn't realize the importance of, quote, elite, close quote, schools never occurred to me. My parents uh, were not of that uh, ilk. My mother uh, was a high school graduate. My father never even graduated high school. Uh, and eventually, after he got out of the Army on a disability discharge, he went to college and became an engineer. But we weren't a family of, of, we were a normal middle-class family in a Los Angeles suburb. I didn't understand the importance in terms of rising in society, of going to Harvard, going to Stanford, and those kinds of colleges, and it, it never hit me that that would be something I, I would even want to achieve, not to mention be able to. But when I did that um, law school working full-time, I realized for the first time what I was capable of, And that impacted me completely. I have to say, without my law background in the training and in the uh, give and take of law practice, I mean, it's it's a Darwinian atmosphere as a lawyer. I mean, you are there up against another lawyer. And most of the cases, I was a civil lawyer for the most part. Most of the cases are won or lost in the deposition where there's no judge to keep order. It's all based on the strength of your personality. So all of that formed me so that now when I'm out in public policy issues or I'm being attacked and I'm being accused or I'm being supported, I don't take that too too uh, much to heart either, um, that law all prepared me for it. and It allowed me, by the way, to not get into such despair that I want to hide under the, under a table because you have to create a certain distance be- when you're lawyering, and I, this was hard to learn, you have to create a certain distance between what you're doing for your client and your own personal life. Otherwise, you won't have a personal life, because every, you're, you're, they say in, um, the, law, the law is a jealous mistress. We heard that a lot when I was a, a young lawyer, and it's true. You could end up having every waking moment subsumed and consumed by your cases. So you have to learn if you're going to be sane and have a, a personal life to, to kind of keep that at a bit of a distance. And I've and that also has helped me in this work, so that I, you know, I deal with things that I think are of deepest, darkest evil in some situations, but I'm able to be happy and have a personal life and a happy marriage, and and uh, do both at the same time.
0: Okay, so that does raise the question: these bioethical issues. How did you? pivot then from law and from writing to this particular focus on bioethical issues, particularly issues of suicide uh, and other denial of care issues?
1: Well, one of the great honors of my life was years after Ralph Nader had uh, inspired me as a teenager, I became his colleague, friend, and co-author. That came about because uh, I wrote a book. My first book was called The Lawyer Book, A bolts Guide to Client Survival. All of that ang- uh, pain that I experienced as a lawyer, I turned into a book for people on how to be a client. It was a consumer's guide to how to be a client, and it came out in the late 80s, which at the time had not been done. It was, it was a groundbreaking book. And when I, when I turned in the manuscript to the publisher, I said, my dream would be for my hero, Ralph Nader, to write the introduction to this book. And she said, my editor, well, let's send it to him. I said, you can do that? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, sure. She sent it to him. He lost it, which is very Ralph. She sent it to him. She, he lost it. She sent it to him again and he wrote the most wonderful, amazing, complimentary introduction. It was like, be still my beating heart, right? I I was just, I couldn't believe it. Well, because of that, I eventually met Ralph. We became friends. I uh, wrote a couple of other follow-up books that he introduced, and eventually we co-authored four books. Uh, And When I was in the process of co-authoring the last book we wrote, which was called No Contest, Corporate Lawyers and the Perversion of Justice in America, that was our last collaboration, I had a friend commit suicide under the influence of the Hemlock Society. And her suicide upset me so much, I asked her executrix to send me her papers on suicide. I knew she'd have, her name was Frances, I knew she killed herself on her 76th birthday, I knew she would have a suicide file because she was the most organized person I've ever met. And so the Executrix sent me Francis's suicide file, and it was filled with the most scurrilous literature from the Hemlock Society. Uh, They were called Hemlock Quarterlies. Uh, Hemlock Society was more honestly named in those days. These days it goes by the name of Compassion and Choices because the uh, death pushers love their euphemisms. Uh, And these quarterlies taught... Francis, how to commit suicide, told her the drugs to use. She underscored it in yellow. They had proselytizing stories of uh, good assisted suicides. I remember one because my head exploded, and I can still quote it all these years later. Now, this happened in 92. Um, my, My loved one laughed and giggled and seemed to relish the experience. That's a quote I remember all these years later, and Francis had underscored it in yellow. And I was so upset by this. And they taught they taught her how to use a plastic bag to make sure she died, which is how she did it. She paid a cousin $5,000, it turns out, to be with her when she took her poison at a hotel. And I think the cousin, I don't know this, but I suspect, put the bag over her head to make sure she died. I was so upset, I wrote a piece for Newsweek Magazine, which is called The Whispers of Strangers, it's available online if people will uh, do a net search of Wesley J. Smith comma Whispers of Strangers. It'll come up, in which I, t- I discussed this Francis circumstance. It was my first real focus on assisted suicide euthanasia. I was writing books with Ralph Nader. I was happy as a clam. I wasn't thinking of doing any of the work I, I ended up doing. Uh, and, the bo- and the piece came out in June of 1993, and I thought it was a one off. I was done. I didn't think, as I said, I didn't think it was controversial. And then the hate mail came pouring in from all directions and realized that at this time you couldn't just hit a link and send hate mail. You actually had to get something. You needed effort. You needed to get a piece of paper and something called a pen or a typewriter that you put on so you'd have. Uh, cursive or typewriting on paper you even paid for the privilege of sending hate mail because you had to pay for an envelope to send it in the in the uh, mail i received about 150 letters uh in response to that article most of which were i hope you get cancer and die francis is noble suicide is the future etc etc and i thought good grief what happened to my culture and where was i when it happened and at the same time, the, what's now called the Patients' Rights Council, at that time was called the International Anti-Euthanasia Task Force, reached out to me and they said, can we republish your piece in our newsletter? And I said, of course. And I said, are you aware what these people, yes, Wesley, we know. Do you know what they wanted? Yes, Wesley, we know. And I read a book by Rita Marker, who's the head of the uh, Patients' Rights Council still, called um, Deadly Compassion. Uh which was about uh, the wife, second wife of the founder of the Hemlock Society, Derek Humphrey. Her name was, I believe, Anne Humphrey, and her eventual suicide after the assisted suicide mo- movement abandoned her when she got breast cancer. And who did she turn to as the only source of friendship? The enemy, Rita Marker, who had been opposing assisted suicide. Wow. And so the book was about Rita's relationship with Anne. And and eventually did commit suicide, and Rita very gently weaved in. This is the goal. This these are the uh, plans of the euthanasia movement. I've never been so shocked in my life, and so I called and I said, you know, I've got some talent. I think you could use, and I said I'll give you ten percent of my time. Then it was twenty. Then it was forty. Then it was fifty. And eventually Ralph asked, you know, why are you doing this instead of our work? And I explained it to him and he said, you know what, you're right, you go ahead. Because Ralph is uh, like Johnny Appleseed. He creates activists yeah, <laughs> and teaches yeah. them how to do it, which he did for me. Uh, and so I, I, I switched to these issues and then assisted suicide led to the bioethics the bioethics led to understanding the problem with animal rights versus animal welfare which led to the problem of the nature rights issue and got me thinking about this whole overarching theme of human exceptionalism so
0: this is 1992 that your friend francis killed, killed herself yeah this is just about 5 years removed from the 1997 decision where the supreme court says there is no constitutional right.
1: Right. I I filed an amicus brief in that case. One of the good things I did as a lawyer for the, uh, at that time, international anti euthanasia task force, it was a nine to zero. There is no constitutional right to assisted suicide. Now, why did the Supreme court do that? A lot of the, the concurring opinions actually almost argued that there should be such a right, but I figured out, you know, they didn't dare after Roe v. Wade. It struck me that the court did not want to Again, engage a volatile life and death kind of issue in the way they had in 73 with Roe v. Wade. And so the other thing was, I think the assisted suicide movement moved too early to try to get it to the Supreme Court because the country was still very reluctant to go down that road. The only, at that time, the only state that had legalized assisted suicide was Oregon. Uh, and my, then and now most of the efforts to legalize fail but they they were so full of their own uh, hubris if you will that they took it to the supreme court and they lost nine to zero and that's going to be very hard for them to overcome but they are going to try
0: well and i think they've they've taken the approach of federalism basically right they've they've said fine we'll go to the states and they're chipping away state after state you know the district of columbia right. made the decision recently to permit it and one of the things we emphasize at Americans United for Life, but broadly that you do through your writing, Wesley, is that the object here is not the assistance. The object is the suicide. Yes. That's what's often lost in these conversations. But let's switch gears for a second and talk about uh, some non suicide related books. Please. <laughs> uh, first, we, we've touched upon some of your work with Ralph Nader. So you mentioned No Contest, uh, Corporate Lawyers, and the Perversion of Justice in America. What was it like writing with Ralph Nader?
1: working with ralph nader was unbelievably interesting and powerful for me as you recall he was my hero and what i found most wonderful is often when you get to be close to your hero it's like the the uh, the a hero is not a hero to his valet there's a saying something like that ralph is 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 the same in private as he is in public with one exception he's funnier in private He's got a very funny, very droll, dry sense of humor. Uh, He is incredibly diligent, very dedicated. He helped me become a better writer because uh, the way we would tend to go is uh, I would do some research. He would throw research my way. I would tend to write a first draft, and he he would then take my first draft, and he would add things he wanted, and he would correct things that he didn't like, and so forth. It was a true collaboration. And one of his critiques of my, of my writing, he said, you are writing too passively, meaning I was using uh, very passive kinds of verbs uh, instead of active verbs. And, and Ralph, if you'll notice when Ralph speaks, he speaks very vividly and in a very active tone. And he taught me the importance of that because it really communicates much better, particularly if you you're trying to make an urgent point. So Ralph made me a better writer. He once said something to me that I never forgot. I said, "Ralph, I'm doing the best I can." He said, "Wesley, never say you're doing the best you can because it's not true." He said, "The best way to say that is I'm doing better." And I thought, you know what? He's right, and he holds himself to those same uh, values. So. Being Ralph's friend, uh, being with him through uh, some tragedies that his family experienced, uh, working with him uh, was a, a, a tremendous thrill for me, honor for me, and I think was the second thing after law, uh, the third thing after law, the second thing was I was also an actor <laughs> uh, in Hollywood, um, but the third thing that made it so that I think that I can be an effective advocate today for what I'm doing. Those three things, law, acting, which made it so that I wasn't afraid to be in public, and uh, the techniques I, I learned at the feet of the master of advocacy, Ralph Nader, uh, turned me into whatever benefit I'm providing today. Uh, those three things were the uh, were the, uh the, the, the foundation stones.
0: We're going to talk more about your acting career sometime soon. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, and Ralph Nader's still at it, right? I yes, mean, that's the amazing is. thing. He's these, these, the Boeing um, 737 max disasters. I know yeah. he's, he's been out in public again, advocating for justice on.
1: Yeah. And he had a personal connection. His niece was killed in Ethiopia uh, on, with, one on one of these, one of the Boeings. And she was uh, a brilliant young woman who I knew as a little girl, I didn't know her as an adult, who was going to Africa, her name was Samya, she was going to Africa with a nonprofit to help Ugandan set up primary medical care systems, and she had the misfortune and tragedy of being on that plane. So Ralph has uh, obviously... uh, Engage that issue, and it's beyond our scope here, but there's much to engage. He and I appeared, he and I, one of the books we wrote was on aviation safety in the 90s. Uh, and he and I both uh, appeared together uh, at a uh, meeting here in DC about six weeks ago, uh, dealing with that issue. So it was kind of like teaming ourselves back up. And Ralph, um, he's 85 now, but he gave a speech. And when he stood up to give a speech, it was the Ralph Nader that set Wesley's heart on fire. Mm -hmm. And I was just so touched to be part of that. Uh, I can't tell you what a wonderful man he is and how much I love him.
0: It's easy to hear a phrase like righteousness and think of it as just sort of sweetness. Yeah, it's not. But you look at—I mean—go up and look at YouTube videos of Ralph Nader, and you see what righteousness means uh, in someone's eyes, in someone's demeanor and authenticity. And tone.
1: Authenticity, because when Ralph is speaking, it's coming from every ounce of his being. He is not being a phony. He is—he is telling it the way he. Whether one agrees or disagrees, and I can understand where people might disagree with some of what Ralph says, but he is being authentic and, yep. and, and humanitarian, and that is what is a creates a powerful leader. We've talked before
0: about uh, MLK, in particular, his witness, and, yep. and while some of these things are beyond the scope of life issues per se... They do speak to the fact that whether you're dealing with consumer advocacy, life issues, cultural issues broadly, it speaks to that that wonderful phrase of MLK's of all of us being caught up together in a network of mutuality. Yes. So I think uh, that's that's a thing that you and know, and this.
1: the thing to avoid is expediency. I learned that when I was uh, practicing law. Uh, my bosses uh, at the civil firm uh, made me <laughs> join one of these civic organizations. I think it was the Junior Chamber of Commerce. It's been a long time. And at that time, only men could be members. And I, I thought that was unjust, and I, I uh, promoted a, a motion at my local chapter to p- admit women uh, that I wanted us to take then to the national uh, to try to change that policy. And I got so much pushback that when the time came for a vote and everybody was voting no and they came to me, I voted abstain. And the people looked at me with such disdain after I'd pushed this so hard, I didn't have the guts to vote yes. That was a really important lesson I learned, and I've tried never to do that again.
0: All right. Let's turn toward your advocacy, your scholarship on suicide. We've talked about this. What do you mean when you talk about there being a culture of death? It's a phrase we hear often. John Paul, too, has used it. Others have used it.
1: I took it from John Paul, too, because I thought it was uh, very apt. We are in a culture in which death too often is deemed an answer to a personal or societal problem. And so you end up with the uh, first half of human exceptionalism, the intrinsic, unique dignity, and valuable worth of human life being trashed, uh, around certain issues, and the, my primary focus, as you have mentioned, has been end of life issues such as assisted suicide, which, by the way, isn't necessarily end of life. Uh, bioethics: the uh, the where bioethics has gone so wrong is that it rejected human exceptionalism in its analysis and accepted uh, a relativistic view. Generally speaking, it's not unanimous. Obviously, a Catholic bioethicist doesn't feel this way. Somebody like Leon Cass, uh, who headed the President uh, George W. Bush's President's Council on Bioethics, uh, did not uh, advocate for this. People like William Hurlbut, my friend from Stanford who's a bioethicist, does not agree with this. But in the primary look at, at bioethics, they have accepted this idea that being human in and of itself is not relevant morally. Therefore, then they've come up with then how what is relevant, and they've primarily come up with the idea that what matters isn't being human, it's being a person, and so somebody like Peter Singer and others will say, well, if you're not self-aware over time or you cannot value your own life, you're not a person, and therefore your human value doesn't matter because you're not a person, so you have less value than persons, and it gets to the point where Peter Singer and many in bioethics, not unanimous, but I think it's the predominant view, say that there's such a thing as a human non-person. Now think about the danger of that. A human non-person. non-person. So who are the human non-persons? Or what, you might even say, are the human non-persons? All onborn life, embryos and fetuses, they're not conscious, they're not self-aware, they can't value their own lives. Ah, but neither are infants uh, conscious in that sense. So, Peter Singer—it's not coincident—is um, the world's most famous proponent of the propriety of infanticide after birth abortion, which has been argued very seriously. Which we've heard doesn't exist. We well, it 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 it, it does exist actually in the Netherlands. Uh, infanticide is performed by doctors in the Netherlands as part of their euthanasia. Uh, if a baby is born with a terminal condition or a seriously disabling condition. Doctors kill them in their bassinets in hospitals with lethal injections. This,
0: this is a this is an official protocol. I forget the name of it. The but.
1: Groningen protocol, G-R-O-N-I-N-G-E-N, and it's a bureaucratic checklist about which babies can be killed. But back to the bioethics, and then there are uh, human non-persons, so-called, who've lost the personal capacity. Terry Schiavo is the classic example, uh, a woman who uh, had been a person because she had been self-aware over time able to value her own life and so forth had a cardiac arrest uh and became uh, s- profoundly cognitively disabled during the I was very involved uh in trying to help save Terry's life as a writer and an advocate I wrote quite a bit on the weekly standard and other uh publications uh, trying to defend her got to know the Schindler family Bobby Schindler um, who you know, Tom, very well, obviously, yeah. uh, the sister, uh, Mary and Bob, the father. Uh, and I was once on a debate on, it uh, doesn't exist anymore, court TV, and with a bioethicist. And I said, well, you know, we were going back and forth about the case and everybody knew the facts by that time. I said, well, let me just get to the bottom line. A guy named, uh, I believe his name was Bill Allen. And I said, well, is Terry a person? He said, no, she's not a person because, see, she'd lost those capacities that many in bioethics think give value. And I said, does that mean we could take her organs? And he said, well, we should treat her organs like any other piece of property. If that doesn't illustrate the danger of rejecting human exceptionalism in bioethics, I don't know what does. Now, there was an early bioethicist who did not have that approach. His name was Paul Ramsey. Paul Ramsey was a Christian ethicist, and his famous book, and famous lecture was called The Patient as a Person. And his thesis was, listen, this is when the days when people were hooked up to machines when they didn't want to be, hooked up to tubes and so forth, and you couldn't get out of the intensive care unit if you just wanted to go home and die a natural death. And Paul Ramsey said, "That's not when you force these instrumentalities on patients who just want to get out of the hospital, perhaps go home and die a natural death at home, you are treating them as a non-person person so he said, we should always treat patients as persons. And it really, the, the, the best uh, success of bioethics, writ large, was that we do have the right to refuse unwanted medical treatment. If you don't want chemotherapy, you don't have to have it if you have cancer. If you don't want to be in that ICU, you don't have to have it, which, of course, dovetails beautifully with the hospice movement that arose at about the same time. Dame Cecily Saunders of the United Kingdom, one of the great medical humanitarians of the 20th century, most of whom your listeners probably don't even know her name because the media at that time was so caught up in Jack Kevorkian, they didn't realize who was assisting suicides that, that Dame Cecily Saunders had come up with this entire program of caring for the dying in a humane way that c- controlled symptoms and, and, and made the dying process about living instead of dying, where assisted suicide makes it about death. When you think about treating patients as persons, as Paul Ramsey suggested, and Dame Cicely Saunders, who was against assisted suicide, she said, she told me, I got to interview her for Culture of Death, she told me, when you allow somebody in hospice, when you say, yes, we'll assist your suicide, you're denying their intrinsic dignity, which is true. And so part of the original hospice mission was suicide prevention because people who are dying are should be entitled to as much suicide prevention as the troubled teenager or the businessman who's, whose business has collapsed in scandal. That's, treat, that's what bioethics should be. But when the mainstream rejected Paul Ramsey's thesis, other than the refusing medical treatment, and started pushing the idea of some patients as non-persons, that's when it went badly off the rails.
0: Well, and you notice what ties these things together is on the one hand a sense that we're at a a new phase almost in in history where we can define such a thing as a human non-person if that's a phrase that makes sense to anyone and on the other hand what it embodies is us falling into the same choices that human societies and human beings have fallen into since our beginning which is an urge to marginalize, to create a class of people, human non-persons or you talk about creating a class of disposable people in your book, Forced Exit, which came out in 97 as well. These things are played out again and again. You touched on something I, I want to have you dive into a little bit deeper, which is this distinction between end-of-life cases and cases where a patient is not actually dying, but it's characterized as end-of-life. So Terry Schiavo is an example, is Vincent right. Lambert in France. Right. A recent victim is an example of this. People who are, are either disabled or who are simply facing difficult circumstances and who are encouraged to die. Their cases are described as end of life, but they're not dying.
1: Well, they're only end of life because you're taking away their food and water. Uh, As was uh, the case with Terry Schiavo took 14 days to die. Uh, She was not hooked up to machines. Uh, She was not, she was able to swallow. She was not able to chew Uh, during the uh, couple of year process. Uh, the Schindler family found a very reputable Chicago occupational therapist who signed a declaration under penalty of perjury that she thought Terry could actually be taught how to chew and swallow again. Well, Terry was going to be lying in a bed for a year before the case was resolved, so one would think that a good judge... A judge who cared about humanity and the sanctity of human life and the most vulnerable patient you can imagine would say, yeah, while while we're waiting these appeals, why not give that a shot? Instead, the judge blocked that attempt. I mean, even if it failed, what would have been the harm? The harm, I believe, this is Smith on the Shivo case, was that Florida law required for somebody to have their food and fluids taken away when it was provided by tube, that the patient be in a persistent vegetative state that is unconscious. I don't like the term persistent vegetative state because no human being is a vegetable. A vegetable is a carrot. No human being, and I urge your listeners, never use the V word to describe any human being. It's as demeaning and diminishing as the N word for African Americans or black people and as the C word for women. It is intended to degrade. We should not ever use it. People are not Carrots or rutabagas. But the Florida law at that time said that in order to take away a tube-supplied food and water, the patient had to be unconscious, persistently unconscious. If Terry had been able to be taught to swallow and chew and swallow, it would be obvious she wasn't unconscious. Therefore, I believe, and, and it was fought by Terry's husband, and the judge blocked it, They knew what they didn't want to know. And therefore, she was allowed to lie in a bed instead of receiving the kind of therapy, which might not have worked, and then we would have known, but which, if it had worked, would have saved her life.
0: Well, and it is a matter of justice, too, right, which is rendering to one what one is due. Yeah. And the most vulnerable among us, in this case Terry Shivo, for justice to be served was due that sort of care. And don't, this is care. It's not medical right. treatment. This is not exotic. It's it's ordinary.
1: There are things that everybody's entitled to when they when they're in a medical circumstance, being kept clean, being kept warm, turned so you don't get bed sores. These are not medical interventions. They're basic humane care and receiving sustenance. You actually find now in the euthanasia movement that there is, a mo- there is a strong drive in bioethics and in the euthanasia movement to force caregivers to refuse spoon-feeding to people with dementia if that person, when they, were com- when they were competent, had signed a written statement saying, I don't want to be kept alive. Well, the point of that, see, spoon-feeding... A feed-
0: broad declaration, right?
1: Yes, spoon-feeding is not a medical treatment. That's humane care. Feeding tube is a medical treatment. At least that's how it's been defined, and that's what the law says, because you have minor surgical procedure to put in the feeding tube, and the the food and, and sustenance that's provided is created under medical auspices. But spoon feeding isn't a medical treatment. So they now want to be able to force, let's say, Mother Teresa's nursing homes, to starve and dehydrate people who willingly take food to death if that person had signed an advance directive saying, this is what I want. Now, an advance directive is supposed to say what you want in terms of medical treatment or what you don't want in terms of medical treatment. This movement of bioethics and assisted suicide now wants to be able to force caregivers to remove what has always been known as humane care.
0: Well, and it's a power grab, ultimately, Wesley, because they're saying... The spoon feeding is happening in a medical environment. Perhaps there are personnel employed by a medical facility providing the spoon feeding, and so therefore we can consider it a form of medical
1: treatment. It's also disingenuous because the point of that is to get people to say, well, if we're going to starve them to death, which is inhumane, let's just give them the lethal injection. The idea is to get over our... Uh, what they when in bioethics they denigrate as just the yuck factor, uh, as if well we we normal people we just can't handle the truth right and and it's called the yuck factor because we just get squeamish about it when we shouldn't. The idea behind the tube, by the way, with feeding withdrawal and I believe. The, uh, this idea of voluntary stop eating and drinking where people are starving themselves to death. It's a v said, right? V-SED, yes, V-S-E-D. And this idea, I call it v said by proxy, that is uh, forcing caregivers to do it even if you eat. It's to say, well, let's just, we shouldn't do that to people. Let's just give them the lethal injection. When instead what we should be saying is, no, we shouldn't be doing that to people.
0: Yeah, yeah you write uh, in your book culture of death uh, about the emerging duty to die i think this dovetails with some of these things we've been talking about number one because as you say most normal folks especially if they haven't encountered this through a personal or familial circumstance they're not following a distinction between these between what makes yeah. an end of life i mean people crazy have real to know lives. people yeah. have real lives yeah so so what is this duty to die then
1: there's an implied duty to die, you could say, if we institute healthcare rationing. For example, if we're going to deny certain people medical treatment based on invidious discrimination, let's say based on age or disability. But there's also an aspect of duty to die that is pushed in bioethics. It's certainly not agreed to by everyone. But the idea is very utilitarian. I remember, I said earlier that for some, the purpose of society is to prevent suffering. And so the duty to die idea is that if you are elderly or if you are seriously sick, in order to prevent suffering of your loved ones or the suffering of society because of the cost of care, you have a duty, as Governor Lamb of Colorado once put it very crassly, to die and get out of the way. Now, Governor Lamb has denied he meant it the way it sounded, but even if he didn't, there are people who believe that that you have a duty to die and get out of the way. In Culture of Death, I interviewed uh, the primary proponent of the duty to die, a fellow named Hardwick, who was a bioethicist. And at the time I I did the first version of the book, which came out in 2001, Um, he said to me, what if your mother had Alzheimer's disease and she got to the place where you need she needed a lot of care and you couldn't write anymore as much as you used to and you couldn't travel and speak anymore as much as you used to don't you think she would have a duty to die and get out of the way he didn't use to die and get out of the way but he would don't you think she'd have a duty to die because he believed that as you if you're age 75 or 80 and you and you're not ready to die he calls that a moral failing and the idea was to put yourself out of your family's misery and so then Cut to 2016. Actually, that's when the updated and revised version came out of of Culture of Death, with you know Terry Schiavo cases in the new version, which wasn't in the original because it hadn't happened yet, and so forth. And one of the things that also had not happened in 2000 when I interviewed Hardwick and happened had happened by the time Culture of Death came out, the revised version, was my mother did get Alzheimer's disease. I did bring her, my wife and I did bring her home uh, for her last five months. Caring for her actually over a couple of years did require me to do curtail some of the things I would have otherwise done. And I can tell you from personal experience that Hardwick is full of it. My mother did not have a duty to die. In fact, I had the duty to increase my love for her and improve my care for her. Because she had a greater claim on my care and on the care of her her society when she was in many ways helpless than she did back in 2000 when my mother was a very vigorous elderly woman who was swimming a mile once a week. So uh, I have gone through what Hardwick actually said I should think about uh, back when we had our interview, and I can tell you he's full of beans.
0: Wesley, my own grandfather also had Alzheimer's uh, when I was growing up. He was diagnosed when I was uh, not, not yet 10. And this was before the Terry Schiavo story. So it's something that I experienced in the home. I lived with my grandparents growing up. And you see, I think, especially Alzheimer's and dementia tend to be sort of like we talked about earlier, one of these icky subjects for people. It's difficult to think about. It's difficult to talk about. No one wants to imagine themselves in that situation. The moments weren't... Always easy, but they weren't always hard either. That's the part I think that needs to be emphasized more. You see, this—I mean—in cultural things like *The Notebook*, right? You said this is a whole, this is a loving movie about a spouse caring for uh, his wife with uh, Alzheimer's. But my grandfather, both before his diagnosis and in some ways, especially afterward, taught me more about the characteristics of true masculinity forbearance, perseverance, humility, courage, these things that sound like just words most of the time, but you see that lived out. Yeah. Incarnate with somebody else. Right. And that to me, you know, we went through as a family, a lot of the issues that the Terry Schiavo went through and that so many millions of Americans are going to go through ultimately as our technologies have increased our spectrum of treatment options. And we had to ask ourselves toward the end of his life, because one of the effects of this, is, as you know, Wesley, is that you, know, you can forget literally how to swallow. You can forget what to do when someone presents you with food. And you're asked, what do we owe to this person? And it, and it started for us with just remembering this is still my grandfather. This is still our father. This is still my husband. Their circumstance hasn't changed their dignity, the convenience of, of my life has no bearing on what they are owed as a loved one. And it's, it's really hard to introduce someone to these things until they're introduced through it through personal circumstance. And it's precisely for that reason I think that it's so crucial to talk about it because if, if we're not sharing our perspectives, we know the alternatives. We know the compassion and choices route. We yes. know what they did to people like Francis.
1: And that gets to the um, issue of human exceptionalism, our duties to each other aspect. It's not just sanctity of life, it's also our obligations. Not just to those we love, but to people and human beings just because they're human. My mother uh, went through some very difficult times, but in some ways it was more difficult for me because the next day she'd forget. And I'd say, Ma, do you remember? And she'd say, I'm sorry, I have no idea. I remembered. I remembered. So does that mean that her life was less valuable because I had gone through some experiences that I wish I hadn't? Of course not. Um, My uncle also died of Alzheimer's, her brother, uh, before she did. He was her older brother, and I was his power of attorney. And before he became non compos mentis, he and I had a long talk about what he would want and what he didn't want. And he was very frail at the end, very ill, and he got an infection, And the uh, doctor called and said, do you want to give him antibiotics? Did I want to give my uncle antibiotics? Yes. Did I order antibiotics? No. Because my uncle didn't want that. I did not want to violate what he had said he did not want. But that was not killing him. It turned out he died within the day and the antibiotics wouldn't have made a difference. But I said no to the antibiotics because I was respecting my uncle and it was allowing him to die a natural death. It was not killing my uncle. It was the, one of the hardest things I ever did. I felt like I was emotionally stabbing him in the heart. So I think that illustrates something that everything isn't about how we feel too often. It's think about how, what people say, what do you feel about this? What do you feel about that? It should be, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Yeah. So, Feelings, if feelings become the basis for what we decide is right and wrong, then what is right today can very easily become wrong tomorrow because our emotions are very volatile. That's the point of principles. One of the reasons I like groups like Americans United for Life is you create principles and then you live your advocacy around those principles, but hopefully people will then live their lives around those principles. The point of principles is so that when you have that difficulty arise, you have a place to go to determine how you behave and what you do and what you decide. If it's all based on feelings, it's going to be flotsam and jetsam on the the tides. There will be no stability. And I think that's one of the problems we've got in our country today and Western society in general is I feel instead of I think.
0: Well, and it also illustrates, Wesley, this reality, which is that whatever, if you're having trouble kind of cutting through a lot of the, the thick bramble that, that is engaged in the, these sort of conversations, remember that the intentional ending of human life by, say, a fatal medicinal overdose is not, is not a natural death. It's, 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 a, it's an inhuman death, actually. So on the one end, it would be schizophrenic for us to bemoan the opioid crisis and the deaths and tragedy that's coming from this and, on the other hand, promote something like suicide by physician. Those sorts of things do not encourage or affirm or uphold human dignity. We have to come back to a place of principle. We have to come back to a place of clarity.
1: And we also have to use plain, descriptive, accurate language. Overdoses is never medication. It's not medicine. It's poison. Assisted suicide is not, quote, aid in dying, close quote. Aid in dying is a euphemism that is intended to mask what is going on. Assisted suicide, or as you described it, assisted suicide by doctor, I like that, is accurate. It's descriptive. When the euthanasia activist says somebody who's been diagnosed with a terminal illness can't commit suicide because if it wasn't for the terminal illness, they wouldn't want to die. Well, you would say the same thing about the mother who wants to commit suicide because her child was hit by a car, but for the child being hit by the car, the mother wouldn't want to die. If the mother commits suicide because her child was hit by a car, she's committed suicide. If Charlie commits suicide by doctor, I like that term, Because he's been diagnosed with cancer and he's worried about being a burden to his family, he's committed suicide. Now, this isn't to yell at Charlie or to castigate Charlie. It is to invoke our duties to Charlie, which is suicide prevention. So what we do when we say to... Uh, the woman whose child has died, well, we're going to give you suicide prevention because, you know, you've got a life you can still live and we want to help you get through that darkness. But then we say to Charlie, we're not going to give you suicide prevention because you've got cancer and, of course, you want to die. You're telling Charlie that there is no future when there is. I've known people who have gone through that darkness and come back on the other side to be very glad they're alive. And you're also treating Charlie as an unequal. You're saying we're going to give suicide prevention and have the state protect the lives of some suicidal people, but not others. And when you say that Charlie is not protectable, you're saying Charlie is not equal. You're saying Charlie has less value. And you're sending the message to Charlie that he has a duty to die and get out of the way because he's a burden on his family and he's a burden on the society. We must give suicide prevention equally to all suicidal people. That's how you love them. You do not love people by saying, okay, it's your choice, because that confirms their worst fears that are causing the desire for suicide.
0: Wesley, this has been a great, heavy, in-depth, important conversation. One of the things we do on every show is we talk about something we're grateful for. We call it our weekly shot of gratitude. Wesley, what is something that you are grateful
1: for? All the love I've had in my life.
0: I'll echo that. Thanks, Wesley. Wesley, it's been so good talking with you. We're going to have you back again. Thank you. Make it your first priority to go out and pick up a copy of Wesley J. Smith's book, Culture of Death, The Age of Do Harm Medicine. You won't be able to put it down. I'm Tom Shakely, and this has been Life, Liberty, and Law.